But up first uh, in the public health briefing yesterday, uh, the release, uh, we heard some bad news regarding new outbreaks in BC, one in Langley, another at an Abbotsford care home. Uh, Here's Health Minister Adrian Dick speaking on the Mike Smith show a little earlier today. That there, there was an outbreak. Uh, there's an outbreak at Mission Memorial. It's linked to the outbreaks uh, in Langley at Maple Hill. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, outbreak at the Tabor uh, care home. That um, health officials are working hard, as you would expect, to isolate these outbreaks. We have had a number of outbreaks where there's only been one case. A test positive case in a care home is concerning for all British Columbians, but it's absolutely terrifying for those in the home or those with loved ones in the home. Let's connect now with the operator of Tabor Village, one of the uh, two homes in questions here. Dan Levitt, welcome back to the show. Really appreciate you doing this. Oh, great to be here, Jody. How are you and your residents doing um, uh, currently with, with this test case positive? Well, um, we have uh, gone into our emergency operations. Uh, we're getting a lot of support right now from uh, Fraser Health. Um, they came in on site uh, this week, and uh, we're basically going through all of our protocol, reviewing them, uh, making sure we're doing everything possible to ensure that there is no spread of the case. And uh, it, it is a tough time um, in uh, long-term care um, across Canada. Um, and certainly um, we've experiencing that this week. And uh, I can tell you that the, uh, the staff had just been heroes all the way through from day one. Um, we have a very strong infection control uh, program in place and the staff have been following it from the moment the outbreak was declared. So we've been ready for this um, when the emergency measures were put in place back in, in March. Um, our team got together and uh, developed everything that we could. So when this happened, if it was to happen, we were ready to go. Dan, please let your staff know that when we are out every evening at 7 o'clock banging our pots and pans and hooting and hollering, we are doing that for them. Your staff are our frontline healthcare workers in such an important, vulnerable, uh, caring for our elders, our most cherished. Well, thank you for saying that, Jody. Um, it, it's, um, you can get choked up thinking about um, what people are doing themselves. Uh, they, they've withstood a incredible hardship, um, our staff, um, the sacrifices that they've made. Um, staff have um, moved into a hotel nearby so they can be close, close to the care home. Um, staff are making the choice to go in and um, potentially into harm's way. Um, and uh, their, their families um, are concerned, and we should be concerned for them. And I, I agree with you, Jody. They deserve our 100% support. Um, they are healthcare heroes. And the one silver lining, perhaps, if there is um, with COVID-19, is that um, direct care workers um, in seniors care, as well all the way through to the management, the board of directors, you know, all the families, I think this, this sector um, hasn't been recognized in the way that it could be um, by the public generally. And certainly the people in the front line, they deserve all of our support right now. Well, having a, my dad is in a home. I don't know what I'd do without the people. Or I don't know what our family would do without the people who care for him day in and day out. He's deep in Alzheimer's and he is so well cared for. And while we are crushed to not be able to visit, not be able to see our loved ones, uh, it is it is incredibly um, 
valuable. I don't know the right word. It is, it is like, I'm I'm trying to not use the word angels, but it's so good to know we Mm -hmm. have such angels who are willing to sacrifice so much and put themselves, as you said, in harm's way to care for our most vulnerable. Dan, we've been talking about uh, the test case positive in your care home as announced by Dr. Bonnie Henry and health minister Adrian Dix in their release yesterday. Could you give us an idea of how just simple protocols in your care home changed with COVID-19 arriving in British Columbia? Sure, I'll do that. And if I can, Jody, just briefly mention that um, as soon as the, um, the resident was um, tested positive, um, the family decided to transfer her to a different site. And oh. just to clarify that we do not currently have a COVID positive case on site, but we are doing everything possible to make sure that um, if that resident um, had um, had been spread uh, spread the virus, contact. In ter- yeah, contact. If there had been any at all on the site, that we're looking for those symptoms, and uh, we're currently doing swab testing, and so far all the results have been negative. But I can tell you, before before the outbreak. Um, we implemented uh, protocols um, and they've been tested um, by Fraser Health. So we did an audit this week. They looked at things like the entranceway coming in. Are there signage there to make sure that people know um, that visitors cannot come in? They're restricted, um, that the staff don't enter the building and, until um, they um, confirm that they've done the self-assessment, the provincial self-assessment. The, the screeners are asking a series of questions. It's kind of like boarding an airplane. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's fairly, fairly uh, um, involved, and they do a temperature check of, of all the staff. And they do the same thing with the residents every day. We're, we're twice checking our staff and our residents to make sure that there's no symptoms. We're doing temperature checks. We're looking at, at a movement of people to make sure that people who, are, who should be isolated are isolated, and there's a very limited amount of movement, unfortunately. So some people are isolated to their rooms. Others are getting access to the outside. But we're making sure that that's safe. We're looking at um, families being contacted. So we've been sending out weekly emails to families and to staff, uh, making phone calls and letting people know. And um, just, you know, as you're talking about your own experience with your dad, uh, we're making sure that family members can connect with their loved ones. So it could be a telephone phone call, an email message, a card they're sending in. We do the video conferencing on FaceTime or Zoom. And we do have a closed window visit with a special audio system that allows people to see each other. Um, And what we're exploring now is the restrictions are going to be lifted in the future, um, how we can do um, um, visits. We're looking at things like the, um, the orders you know, to confirm that all the um, orders from provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, being followed, um, the nursing stations. Is there clutter there? Um, are people using, um, you know, the staff using their, their meals um, there? And, you know, all these things, when we did the audit uh, this week, we confirmed that all these protocols are, are in place and how, how uh, reusable equipment is being reprocessed. Um, the hallways, what do they look like? Um, it's amazing when you start looking at, at uh, you know, uh, the use of PPE. Um, if it's droplet precautions, people are putting gowns on and uh, you're hand washing um, before leaving the room and going to the next room, putting gloves on, uh, wearing masks, um, eye protection, either goggles or visors. And it's incredible to see how staff have um, completely stepped up um, to the situation. And I'm just so proud of our team at Tabor Village and I'm proud of the whole um, sector of how seniors care has really responded, um, especially when there's such a strong spotlight on our industry. And BC in particular, I think, has fared very well. 
We're with Dan Levitt, who's the operator of uh, Tabor Village uh, Care Home. And Dan, one of the things that you and I had talked about before, yeah. I mean, we had some great news, great news conversations of, yeah. of you know, 80 plus year olds jumping out of airplanes. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the residents of care homes are oftentimes vibrant, engaged, healthful, uh, just need a little bit of help. And and just or, or even a lot of help. And as I've spoken about my dad openly, he asked me to when he was still uh, cognitively able. He said, please talk about Alzheimer's to educate others. Talk about our journey and be open. You're a broadcaster. You're a journalist. You should you should share this. And he was a teacher, which is why I think he wants to, to share our journey and looking at those in in care homes, as we've said, the heroes, the frontline heroes. But when you and I have spoken before and certainly with BC care providers as well in the past, it has been a struggle to staff to the levels of need within some of our care homes. How are your staff dealing with it? Like, do you have all of the help you need now? Has there been an increase in the, in the help you have, as you said, from caregivers going from, from one room to the next and having to change their PPE and wash their hands and be so careful and cautious with those who might be in isolation? Do you have all the PPE and all the staff that you need uh, to support uh, your home at this point? Yeah. Yeah, th- thanks, Jody, for raising that, and I, I really appreciate your advocacy um, for for seniors generally and for people with Alzheimer's. Um, so, yeah, we of course we do have um, all the PPE we need. We we have to have a um, a three day supply at any one time, and we have a fantastic um, um, nurse who's responsible for this, Rhoda, and she makes sure that we have um, an, an algorithm, um, a table showing all of our supplies, and she's out there um, shopping around, getting the best price and. And Fraser Health has been phenomenal. We're really blessed with um, a great public health care system. And uh, we have all the, the PPE we need. Um, and it's, it's available for staff. And the staffing in particular, um, we have gone into overtime as a result of having um, a shortage of staff resulting from the one-site order, uh, which I believe is, a, is the right thing to do, especially with infections and, and perhaps something that will stay afterwards. Um, it will help reduce um, other infections like influenza, which um, is um, chronic to the industry. So our staff, we, we do have extra staff, of course, um, when we're trying to isolate people and, and making sure that only um, the same staff are seeing people with COVID. Um, so, yeah, we do need more staff. Um, and it, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned uh, a year ago, I think we were there with Etta and Henry. Um, mm-hmm. Etta um, was 90, um, Henry was 95. They're both a year older, doing well, and they were skydiving to raise money for, for Tabor Village. And uh, we have a, a Father's Day concert um, on uh, Sunday evening, um, um, including our, the chair of our board of directors, Vic, will be singing, will be broadcasting it on our Tabor um, Facebook page and uh, through our churches. And it's a fundraiser for uh, a COVID emergency relief fund where we raised $40,000 so far of a $10,000 goal. And our, our, wow. our bigger goal, Jody, kind of and as you were referring about um, what these what these places look like is we're trying to replace our outdated nursing home. Um, it's uh, 60 years old, and uh, which for other buildings would probably be okay, but it was designed at a time that um, the kind of people that you would see in, in nursing homes are much different now than they ever have been. And, and I believe that there's um, um, a large percentage of nursing homes um, in BC and perhaps across Canada that need replacement. So we've done a capital campaign. We're at $5 million out of, of, of $11 million goal and uh, we have we've looked at different models of design, and we really like the small household 
um, design where you have 10 people perhaps or 14 up to 14 people living in a household and everything is contained within that neighborhood and if you think about infection control that certainly would be a, a perhaps a better way of controlling infection so they don't spread from one neighborhood to the next and mm-hmm. so we're uh, we're anxious that the, um, that the certainly the, the focus right now of the public on seniors care will that will do the right thing and we will reallocate um, some of our priorities of spending hopefully through tax dollars rather than through the, the seniors um, and we'll get these nursing homes rebuilt and create the kind of places that one day we might um, end up calling home. It is something that we all need to think about. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm sorry that I had forgotten that they were in their 90s. They had come in studio at CKNW, and I got to speak with them face-to-face, and it was quite... A, I won't jump out of a, out of a plane, and I'm 52. So we'll, we'll just leave that there. I do, uh, if it's okay with you, Dan, I want to bring it back around to one of the reasons why we brought you on uh, as a top story of our show is the fact that you had the test case positive. At, you broke the news right here that that individual, that resident, is no longer a table. Village. She has been moved to a different location by her family. What is the protocol when somebody goes to, say, Memorial Hospital in the situation where that is the link here? They go to Memorial Hospital, one of your residents, not unusual for a resident to require a hospital visit. Um, Some people are feeling like, oh, no, hospitals are dangerous. Well, that's not necessarily the case. The virus is everywhere. But when you bring a, um, a resident back to Tabor, do they go into some sort of isolation? Are they immediately tested? Are they tested at the hospital for COVID-19? Is this a, is this a situation where, as Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix have said, that there is that 30% false negative to COVID-19 swab tests? Is, is that perhaps what happened here? So um, I don't know the exact thing that perhaps happened um, at, at the hospital um, leading, leading her to come in, but I do know that there is an algorithm that, that the health authorities use for transferring somebody from acute care to complex care, and there's a screening tool that, that we use. Um, we do look, is, is, it, um, um, is there an advantage to, um, is it medically required to do um, a test? If it is, then it's done. Um, if the person is not showing symptoms and didn't come in contact, then I believe it's not done. And they even look at the uh, six hours before transferring. They look at, does the person require uh, that test? So in this case, right. when... All the when screening she, your staff would have had. Ex- exactly, and I think it's even right. more so with with a senior in this case. And yes, she was isolated to her room. Um, Mm -hmm. She was on precautions, just being preventative, making sure um, that we didn't have any spread. And that would be the protocol for someone when they come back from somewhere else or transferred to a care home, especially during this time. Um, So we did have all those measures in place. And unfortunately, she did develop symptoms and and was confirmed. And and there is, again, an algorithm, a medical protocol that looks at would this person benefit medically from being transferred. In this case, the family requested that and um, her her doctor agreed. And um, there's a team that looks at these issues and she was transferred to a hospital where she can get perhaps the kind of care that she needs that we couldn't provide in a complex care um, home like Tabor. Well, we're grateful that uh, she is in in the right hands uh, and her family is able to be with her. And I'm sure they are very grateful for all that you have done. We are certainly grateful for you coming on today, Dan. I know it's a very difficult time for you and your staff, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Jody. Pleasure. That's Dan Levitt, who operates Tabor Village uh, in Abbotsford, a care home that had that test case positive, That one of the two that you had heard about during the briefing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday in their release. Uh, 
Jody Vance with you in for Jill this week. Another day, more breaking news from the United States. Another U.S. Supreme Court ruling actually hits back at President Trump. And we got more fallout from the John Bolton tell-all. COVID numbers are spiking, as you heard Aaron just referenced there. Florida is becoming an epicenter. Uh, the Pence op-ed piece, the Mike Pence op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal still causing massive waves. We're going to dig into all of this and more with our Global News Washington correspondent. We like to call this checking in with Cicchini. Reggie Cicchini is on the line for our daily update. Reggie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I want to start with just a little clip. This is Donald Trump uh, referencing the book we expect to drop, I believe, next week, hopefully next week, uh, John Bolton's book. Here is uh, U.S. President Donald Trump today. I don't think he's fit for office. I, I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's reelection. Okay, well, that was John Bolton speaking. So uh, one side of the coin, the other, basically, uh, maybe you can paraphrase what Donald Trump's take has been on John Bolton, his, uh, his, his former key member of his administration. Uh, well, I mean, we can paraphrase it really easily. Uh, the president uh, took to Twitter to say that John Bolton is a wacko. Uh, and that is uh, essentially how we are uh, hearing the president kind of paraphrase this book, this 600 page book that's coming out that uh, kind of talks about the already known chaos and disorganization happening inside the White House. So I found really interesting about this, Reggie, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. One of the one of the pieces of this puzzle that seems um, to give a check mark beside the authenticity of some of the things said in this book is that Donald Trump is basically saying that Bolton is using classified information. But the fact of the matter is, if I understand it correctly, inaccurate information could not be considered classified. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a tricky conversation when you're talking about classified because the president says that any of his conversations with people in the Oval Office are either considered under executive privilege or they're considered classified. You know, the president could be flatly saying incorrect things during a conversation, but it would still be considered classified or executive. But at the end of the day, the president is trying to have it both ways. He's trying to say that John mm -hmm. Bolton is lying about everything that we're going to read in this book and also that the conversations uh, contain classified information so it's it's going to be confusing when uh this makes its way into a courtroom setting donald trump loves him some chaos we have found the clip brendan you want to hit that donald trump on bolton clip please he broke the law I, he was a washed up guy i gave him a chance uh he couldn't get senate confirmed so i gave him a non-senate confirmed position where i could just put him there see how he worked and uh, i wasn't very enamored I just had to get that audio in because it's just there. You're his best friend until you're his worst enemy in in one second. Yeah. And I mean, look, the president even today said that he did like John Bolton. He liked that, uh, you know, he kind of created a bit of instability when it came to foreign policy. Let's also remember here that John Bolton is not new to Washington. He served under s uh, several presidents and also was a Senate confirmed uh, uh, um, uh, ambassador to the United Nations, which is partially why he was able to get through and get by that Senate confirmation for the uh, for the position he was in with Trump. At the end of the day, he is well known in Washington. He is a hawk and he is spilling the beans on the administration. Interesting, too, that some will say, well, why is he why has he saved all of this information? Why didn't he go before the Senate during the impeachment hearings? 
It is a conversation that's being had all around the country, but notably here in Washington. Uh, 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 Adam Schiff was speaking today simply saying that, you know, we can't look at John Bolton as some kind of savior here uh, because he essentially left the Democrats out to dry when they were in the middle of their impeachment inquiry. And the Senate Republicans, uh, they simply just wouldn't call him to testify. And, you know, in this book, John Bolton is no friend to the Democrats. He slams them for rushing through this uh, impeachment process. He says that it was far too narrow. The issue is, as a lot of this information wasn't known until now, and he would have been able to expand the scope of that impeachment inquiry. Uh, so there are people saying, you know, there are issues with what he is saying. You got to look at the past as well as looking at what it's doing right now. All right, let's go to COVID-19, the daily numbers. I feel like the numbers spike exponentially by the hour here, just watching the graph inch ever northward. What are the current numbers for COVID in the United States, Reggie? Uh- the current numbers are still uh, staggering into the 2 million plus there are on the approach to 120,000 people dead and all eyes right now are on Florida uh, because the state has hit a new record for the number of COVID cases in a 24-hour period, now topping 3,200. This is uh, There's now fears that this is becoming the hotspot along with Arizona and given Arizona's size compared to New York City, uh, there is a fear that Arizona is essentially in the spot that New York was uh, when it was reaching its peak hospitalization simply because there aren't that many hospital beds in a state like Arizona or like Florida. And this is very problematic now for health experts. This is one of those pieces of the puzzle that people are like, oh, we're just testing more. It's like, well, no, because the hospitals are full. Like, yeah, and I mean, it's not about testing. It's about sick people. Yeah, and look, testing obviously is important, and it was a failed rollout from the beginning in the United States. Mm -hmm. The issue is, as well, there is a lot of testing taking place in the country. The number of positive cases that are coming back are what is more problematic. You know, the president was in a Wall Street Journal interview today talking about how testing isn't all that important, and it's kind of a little bit overblown, and the more testing you do, the worse it makes you look. That might be true, but the more testing you do, you're also supposed to be able to contact trace with that so that you can isolate Mm -hmm. people. That is what's not happening. Which is what is happening here in British Columbia, where our Dr. Bonnie Henry is constantly saying we need to contain and mitigate and put out these little sparks. It sounds like all of Florida is on fire. Uh, A big part of the United States is dealing with these outbreaks and and certainly trying to deal with those outbreaks. The Wall Street Journal's kind of ground zero for both uh, President Donald Trump and I guess Vice President Mike Pence, because his op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal is still making waves. It is making waves uh, only because of the dangerous information that the vice president was giving, whether it's not it's about how the president was handling the situation, whether or not it's about how the media has been handling the situation. This was an opportunity for the vice president to essentially speak to the president's base uh, while not being able to be fact-checked in real time uh, until afterwards. And then you just get into Twitter wars and the, most of the message uh, gets lost. Uh, this is now uh, a, a, a damage moment for the United States as they really try to get a grip of this virus and you're still seeing pushback when it comes to testing, when it comes to mask wearing, whether it's in Florida or Oklahoma where the rally is going to be for the president. This is a Mm. problem for the United States and there are people that are dying because of it. We are continuing to check in with Cicchini, Reggie Cicchini. Uh, You and I go back and forth to figure out of all of the things happening in the United States in what, one morning. Uh, We have to kind of sift through and dig out the things that, that are sort of standing out and certainly the breaking news today with regard to the Supreme Court ruling is massive, Reggie. Can you break down what the pushback on DACA is? Yeah, so essentially what the president had tried to do when he became the president was wrap up and end an Obama-era uh, uh 
program that uh, made it legal for uh, young immigrants who were brought into the country when they were young to essentially protect them from deportation. The president said he wanted to end that. Uh, he tried to draft uh, in, uh, a kind of a, a bill and an executive order that would carry that through. It found its way to the Supreme Court uh, and all liberals voted uh, you know, t- in order to keep DACA a thing and the uh, chief justice sided with the liberals. So both of the president's nominees and, and justices, they went against it, but we now have the chief justice kind of acting uh, as a centrist, joining the liberals, and this is going to allow for this program to stay in place. It allows 700,000 young immigrants to remain in America without any kind of threat of deportation. It's the second sl- uh, clap back to the Trump administration in the last week or so, uh, and essentially the, the court argued that the president's wording was insufficient to try and end the program, and they're telling him, if you want to do it, try it again next year. It feels like 10 years ago that he tried to uh, end DACA, but that was one of the first things that really blew up in the media of people saying, why would you want to stop this opportunity for the United States to be what the Statue of Liberty actually stands for? This program, for, for those who don't know, is for kids under 16 who are attending school or are just completing school with no criminal record that they get a waiver to remain in the country and work or continue to study. It's just the most incredible first sort of domino to fall with this Trump administration that that was one of the things he attacked. And then, you know, it feels again like 10 years ago that we talked about separating families at the border. Reggie, it feels like forever since we heard about, you know, the long, the thousands of people marching north to take over the country. What happened to that narrative? Well, look, the borders are closed, so the president is using it as an opportunity to say that America is essentially a fortress now, and none of these people Mm. that were trying to get a better life can cross the border. Also worth remembering here that the president did this because he has a hardliner in his administration named Stephen Miller, who is anti-immigration and is doing what he can to weed out uh, the immigration policies that are in place uh, for whatever reasons he wants, and the president simply goes along with it. Got a couple things I want to uh, bounce around on here. Uh, We were talking about... uh, um uh, somewhat of an announcement from the governor of Omaha. What What's happening in Omaha, Reggie? This goes back to the issue of wearing masks in this country. Uh, Omaha's governor has said, look, when you're going out in public to try and stop the spread and protect yourself and protect others, wear a mask. Now there's a, a kind of a, an order that's in place that says that if you are a uh, government-operated business or building in Nebraska and you try to enforce a mask law, the government is going to take away any of the funding that was provided by the federal government uh, to help you bounce back from the pandemic. Uh, it's causing a stir, it's causing a controversy, and it's causing confusion because now you have to wear the mask when you're outside. But if you go in a selected business that has to do with the government, you have to take it off. Otherwise, you could cost the state, the city, the region, the municipality funding that it needs. This is the most unbelievable mixed messaging. Is there anybody in the in the scientific community that is screaming at the top of their lungs? We talked about this yesterday that has been weeks since the COVID-19 uh, uh, what do they call it? The tactical force. What is it, Dr. Fauci, the, task the head of the task force? I mean, he hasn't spoken with the president. We haven't seen him at the podium in the press room at the White House for what, six weeks, seven weeks now? It's been seven weeks. Uh, he met privately with the task force and the vice president yesterday. None of the details were oh. released, but the message hasn't been uh, changed. They're still saying 
to mitigate and stop the spread, cover your face. Make sure that you're uh, doing proper uh, uh, isolation and, and social distancing. And you still have governor, uh, governors and governments across the United States actively saying, do not wear a mask. It's not against the law. We're not going to throw you in jail. Even as major city mayors of some of the biggest populations of the country say, we need mask laws because our numbers are flying out of control. And indeed they are. Uh, we're looking at the John Bolton book. I want to get your opinion as to whether or not that that is going to be held up by legal proceedings from the president. Because I understand, I was listening to Mike Smith earlier, and he had a couple of people on who were uh, from the U.S. He had sort of a roundtable on this, and uh, they were saying that they're already printed. It, it's happening. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been sent around the United States, it's in warehouses, and it's been sent around the world. It's going to be impossible now for the Department of Justice to put an injunction in place that's going to stop some foreign country from putting this book onto Mm. uh, its shelf. But at the end of the day, remember, the conversations are either classified or they're not. uh, And the the White House had a copy of this manuscript back in December. They were given an opportunity to read through it, see what they didn't like, see what needed to be worked on. And Bolton worked with uh, personnel with the National Security uh, Council to try and make sure that there was no information that would be uh, potentially damaging to the United States months ago. This was originally set Mm. for publication in April. And we're expecting it next week. And one of the things that we're hearing in the leaked pieces from the book that John Bolton said that he was hard-pressed to come up with anything not associated to re-election from Donald Trump through his entire time with the administration. And certainly it appears that that that's true, given the fact that we're 48 hours out from a Trump re-election rally. Yeah, I mean, look, the president has been obsessed with re-election from day one. And in that Wall Street Journal article that's really sprawling today, uh, the president goes over and over uh, things that he's done in the past that he hasn't really done. And when asked to talk about what he would do in his next term, he talks about things that he tried to accomplish and didn't accomplish in his first term. All he thinks about is getting re-elected, uh, which is why we see him not be able to kind of cohesively talk about an active or current or crisis situation that's happening in the country because his eyes are focused down the road. And this is simply what we heard from John Bolton, whether or not it's dealing with dictators, whether or not it is dealing with the own uh, with the crisis happening in his own country. And was it yesterday that he said that he was going to try to track down anybody who had commented or or reported that he had uh, uh, retreated to the bunker in the White House? He was going to try and try and legally charge people? Yeah, I mean, look, the president has tried to go after leakers uh, in Washington since the day he arrived in office because they spill the chaos that's happening. They give everybody a chance Mm. to read through the tea leaves, but there's a picture drawn under those leaves when you push them out of the way. And now he's trying to say that anybody that leaks, he'll prosecute. The issue is the attorney general came out in public and explained why the president went down in that bunker. So while it may have been leaked, it was then confirmed. Oh, it's quite something to watch. We're very happy and grateful that we have you to unpack it all for us, Reggie. Thanks for this. Thank you. Uh, Tonight, there's an incredibly important Vancouver Park Board meeting, a meeting to sort out or at least try to begin to sort out the controversial handling of proposed changes to Stanley Park mid-pandemic without public consultation. There are incredibly passionate park growers, uh, goers, that is, uh, people filling my inbox. If you want to chime in on this, Jody at cknw.com will give you a, a chance to call in in the next segment as well, 604 280 98 98 star 98 98 on your cell phone incredibly passionate uh park goers are very worried for this crown jewel of a park uh very few are as invested as our next guest park board commissioner john cooper john i know this is a very busy day for you Uh, thank you so much for carving out some time for us thanks very much for having me judy 
I don't think I have ever seen Twitter be such a full-time job after writing the uh, piece that I did this week on the subject matter. Um, it, it is quite yeah. something. It is quite something how um, there are, it's such a wedge issue for some, and yet public consultation, Linda Steele right now has a, um, a poll on her Twitter about this very topic. And the people are chiming in in the hundreds and hundreds without her even having mentioned it on the air yet. Can we? Can you walk us through what we're actually looking at here? There's so much misinformation sort of flying around, and we're trying to nail it down. But it's like trying to nail down Jello to a wall. Sure. Bye. And thanks a lot for the piece you wrote. It was very well done. I want to compliment Thank you me. on that. You know, Stanley Park is, as you said, a jewel. Um, Twelve million visitors a year. Um, it's the number, often the number one urban park in the world. It uh, has one of the great cycling routes in the world on the seawall. Uh, over many, many years, there's been things added to the park board. There's been enhanced to the Stanley Park, and there's been businesses and enhancements and lots of things. It's a park for everybody. You can be in nature, or you can have an experience at the aquarium, or you can go for a, for a nice meal. So people really care about Stanley Park, you know, and it's uh, it's been part. It really was how the park board started. The park board was formed to really look after Stanley Park, and that that was the start of it. And it was, um, you know, it, it was uh, it's been a long term part of Vancouver. So what it is actually is that we closed down the sea, the seawall to bicycles to give people more space to social distance on the seawall, and we put bikes on the main road. This was very early in the pandemic, and everybody was really trying to understand what was happening, and I supported it at the time. It was a great idea to keep people safe. Right now, though, the park is essentially closed, and the only people that have access right now are um, cyclists and able and people who can walk. So there's a yeah. lot of families, there's a lot of the older folks, and there's people with disabilities who can't access the park. And it's one of the best spaces in the city to social distance. It's a thousand acres. <laughs> so yeah. it makes no sense that we would have it closed when our other parks like Queen Elizabeth Park are open. And John, when, when speaking to what it was meant to be initially with regard to the closures, uh, when we were all on lockdown in the pandemic, I mean, I'm born in, or born and raised in Vancouver, but my family lives out in Tawasin and I could go to and from Tawasin at three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday. And it was just fine because there were so few cars on the road because I was going out to visit my elderly parents because they were isolating themselves in their homes. They were not leaving because right. we didn't know we, we were all living rather fearfully. The only time I left my house was to visit my family. And, and now we're opening up a bit more. We're looking okay. So now the folks want to get out. And what's something they would do? Well, they'd go around Park Drive at Stanley Park and visit the place that their daughter got married at the tea house and and maybe sit on the patio there or or just even stop and and, and pull into the parking lot and and look west. I mean, this is what it's about for residents, right? It seems very counterintuitive to me. You know, uh, the city of Vancouver is doing everything they can to help to get restaurants back on their feet. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, waiving rules, giving them more room for patios. It, it, this park board plan that we've heard about to reduce traffic even to one lane of cars. Uh, and and though that one lane would be shared by the, the horse trolley and buses and everything yeah. else. Also takes out parking spaces in two of the uh, iconic restaurants, the Tea House and Prospect Point. So, th- so that, I think, is a big concern. I just got a, a, a letter this right just recently from Tourism Vancouver, which is very interesting. And Tourism Vancouver is supporting the motion to reopen Stanley Park to its pre-COVID-19 approach. 
And they go on to say, as the city prepares once again to welcome visitors to the city and region, we support the motion to keep Stanley Park accessible to all and to remove mm-hmm. any barriers for operators who are trying to get back on their feet post-pandemic. And they're encouraging people to contact commissioners. And I, I really want to thank Tourism Vancouver uh, for taking, taking a stand. Uh, I think it's really important. So I agree with you. I saw that on Twitter because, like I said off the top, Twitter's become a full-time job since this um, shift, the park board shift. At the last meeting, it, it was... It was shocking to so many. I, I had Trisha Barker, uh, your fellow NPA Park Board Commissioner, come on with me the next day, and she was almost almost in tears. She was so emotional about the attacks that were coming her way on Twitter for sta- standing up and saying, whoa, 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 there are changes coming to Stanley Park without public consultation. That's wrong. That's just wrong. This isn't about bikes or no bikes or bikes versus cars or the environment. or And to be honest, even businesses, this is about... Public consultation. If all Vancouverites, if the people who own the park, which is really the taxpayer, that's Lord Stanley, gave this park to the people of Vancouver. If the people of Vancouver said, you know what, shut it down to cars. If there was a majority ruling in that, then so be it. But that's not the message that is coming through loud and clear by we've opened the phone line, said both sides, come on, talk about it. I've done, I don't know, six or seven segments on it. Not one, not one phone call saying, yeah, close, close it down to cars. On Twitter, There is a very, I'm going to just say militant lobby group that will jump on you if you even push back marginally on cycling anywhere. But this is Stanley Park. This isn't a playground. I've had a lot of it. And right to your point, I mean, you've lived in Vancouver a long time. You know, when we do a playground renovation, there's signs go up in the neighborhood. There's surveys that go out. I mean, we do more surveys on a new playground than we've done on this major change to Stanley Park. And I just find it quite absurd. I just can't believe that this is the situation. And you have fellow Park Board Commissioners, we won't name names here necessarily, but pushing back at you saying, why are you telling people this wrong wording? Tell them what's really in the motion. And I'm watching the back and forth. And all I can think of is I don't know the politics of this, but I do know that someone's trying to make a separated bike lane in Stanley Park before reopening it to cars yeah. and before yeah. consulting the public. Well, to be clear, it's the Cope Green Alliance on Park Board. There are two Cope uh, affiliated commissioners and three Green affiliated commissioners. And, uh, you know, they're the same folks who brought you uh, Oppenheimer Park and have been, uh, you know, calling for changes to Langara Golf Course. So, I mean, I think it's a very activist-based agenda. Mm. And I think people want us to look after our parks. I mean, we have such a great history of the park board since the very start. Um, You know, my connection goes back to my father. I've grown up around it. And I think it's it's so important. People love Stanley Park. Surely we can just get it back to its regular state, which was pretty terrific. And if somebody wants to make some changes, make them after we do some really robust consultation. And, uh, you know, the other thing, that motion last, yeah, that motion last week, actually, you know, directed staff to find ways to reduce traffic. Well, that's, you know, they're presupposing the outcome and they voted as a block of those five against the two of us. And, and, and like Commissioner Barker, I was appalled. 
I'm Jody Vance, continuing our chat with John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. We're talking about a very important meeting that is to take place this evening virtually, a park board meeting, emergency park board meeting called by you, John, and uh, Trisha Barker, your fellow NPA Park Board Commissioner. What do you expect to happen tonight? What do you have planned? Why did you call the emergency meeting? Well, I wanted to, you know, direct our staff to open it up uh, quickly. Um, you know, it's been closed for some time now, and we're into the good weather. It's a great spot for us, for everybody, to social distance. Uh, and Vancouverites are speaking out. I think there's now 14,000 signatures to a petition, which is only about six or seven days old. Um, you know, we're getting letters just pouring in from the public saying that, you know, we want basically want to get back into our park. And certainly the, the business owners want to get back in business. I know the Vancouver Aquarium is eager to open. Um, I talked to the CEO there yesterday, and uh, he expressed to me that as soon as vehicles are allowed back in the park, they would be opening um, right away. I know that the, um, you know, the restaurant uh, partners are all um, looking forward to getting their staff back to work. And um, certainly Father's Day is a great, uh, you know, a great time to, you know, go for brunch or be able to sit on a patio outside there. And um, I, I, I would love to see that happen. But right now, it, it appears that everything's stalled while we're waiting for this um, new, fairly, uh, seems to be quite technically advanced at this point after only a week, uh, where they've got rooting through parking lots and all kinds of things. So that's very concerning. I, I don't think it was bad before. Let's get it open. And let's get people out in the fresh air. I would agree with that 100%, especially during a pandemic where people are really focused on on personal well-being, keeping their family safe, trying to get back to work safely, opening up the economy, as you say, uh, looking at the parks uh, around Vancouver and and seeing that the logs are returned to the beach. We've opened up the parking lots at the at the larger beaches where there were some concerns over people gathering and not physical distancing to the degree that was safe. Now people are. Uh, we, we're, we're all kind of getting used to that two meter distance. We're all taking care of one another. We can share the space in a way that we understand what we're dealing with with regard to this virus. And it just seems to fly in the face of all of that to restrict Stanley Park to only those who are physically able to either ride a bike, walk or run into the park. And when somebody says, oh, well, you can just take transit, I think, well, my dad, who would need a wheelchair in Stanley Park, would not be okay um, with advanced Alzheimer's going to Park Royal to get on a tram to get and then take, you know, hours to go where we could go in a 15 minute drive. Sure, and you could have a great you could have a great experience, you know, with your dad. I was up yeah. at Queen Elizabeth Park yesterday. Um, it's open. The, the fountain is still fenced off. The conservatory is closed because obviously that's uh, right. an indoor space. I'd like to see that open though, because the art galleries are open and yes. uh, around town. And I think it, it, we could open that up. It's a, there's a large volume of air there. It's a lot of air, air circulation. But I went. You know, seasons in the park was uh, was open. The restaurant. Uh, there looked mm-hmm. like there was quite a few people there. The parking was quite well used across the at the reservoir and on the on the ring road so we were getting some parking revenue back and i mean that's another part of it just the the park board alone there's four million dollars a year in parking revenue from parking at stanley park that actually supports the maintenance of stanley park so it's that's an important component people forget that the we only get half of our money at the park board from taxation the other half we raise ourselves through the various revenue from our uh, restaurant leases or from our pools and rinks and things like that. So the park board has been hit especially hard in this pandemic. We, we have not hired our lifeguards back. 
we have not hired our temporary seasonal workers, the ones that are that are generally cutting the grass and looking after everything when everything starts to really grow in Vancouver. Mm. So, you know, that's another aspect of it. I mean, none of this stuff is is free. I mean, we need some. We need as an organization. We need to get back to business, just as the restaurants need to get back to business. And even the concession stands. You and I met over a hot dog. I mean, yes, we did. Yeah, the great <laughs> hot dog. <laughs> the great hot dog debate. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, opening I, up those, I, I, th- I just, those are revenue, revenue streams for a park board, are they not? They, yeah, they should. I'm surprised they're not open now because they're really the ultimate takeout. I mean, all, right. all restaurants are getting takeout right through the pandemic, but um, our, our concessions across the city are closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's another thing we should be jumping on. So I don't know why everything, we seem to do a really good job shutting things down. But boy, we seem to be taking our time getting things back to what what is the new normal. And I, I you know, I, I I want to make sure everybody realizes I'm not wanting people not to be safe. You know, I I think people are learning this very well. This isn't a radical idea. This is getting outside in a park. And you know, Queenswood Park is fully open. There's cars in Queenswood Park. There's cyclists in Queenswood Park. There's pedestrians. It's back to normal. Stanley Park, on the other hand, is still basically in lockdown. So I just, while we were talking, got an email from, from Graham, and he says, Hi, Jody, I'm a 66-year-old physically disabled man, and I've not been able to access the park since they closed the road because I can only walk short distances. I'm on the speaker list for tonight's meeting, although there are so many people asking to speak, I don't know if that's possible. I've made a human rights claim on the grounds of the actions of the park board discriminate of my rights to reasonably access the park by accommodating my disability. As part of that claim, I've also pointed out that the park's policy of restricting the sale of parking passes at the Vanier Park boat ramps to people that own a boat and a trailer. There are people that own or that purchased parking passes for Stanley Park, $345. I got an email from someone yesterday. I said, you know, that's just burnt money right now. And I'm being told that the park's staying closed because a bike lane's being built. People are really upset, John. Yeah, I hear their, I feel their frustration. I mean, I feel, I feel frustrated and and sometimes what's frustrating as a commissioner, you know, the people look at the board as the park board. You mm. know, they, they, they're not necessarily looking that there's a diversity of opinions, uh, as there should be. I mean, everybody has their own opinion and everybody. But I think this one has been particularly kind of nasty in the tone. And um, I, I really think that people need to calm down as, uh, you know, be kind and be calm. And let's just try and get back to some sense of normalcy. But let's. I mean, how many cities would love to have a thousand acres of nature right next to the downtown core? I mean, the foresight of, of, you know, the original folks that were here that to set that aside for everybody is just remarkable in this, in this city. And um, people want to get out there. They want to get back there. And, uh, and we want to protect it being what it's, Yes, what it has been. It does not need to be changed. It is not broken. And if changes are to be coming to Stanley Park, they should happen outside a pandemic with full and complete clarity, transparency, and public consultation. Because at the end of the day, Stanley Park belongs to the people of Vancouver. And we are so grateful that you're being a champion to that message, John. Thanks for this. Thank, thank you very much. And we'll see what happens tonight. Yeah, we'll probably be calling you tomorrow to find out what happens tonight if you get any sleep at all. Best of luck to you and to Tricia and to everybody on the park board to find a middle ground and come together on this very important issue. There's still time to say, you know what? Fair enough. We shouldn't have tried to push that hard to push this through. We'll back off and do what's best for the community. In the national fight against COVID-19, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiled the COVID shield. You heard Aaron Eubels just reference it in the news. It's a Made in Canada app. 
He talked about it this morning, unveiled it this morning. It's meant to help us with contact tracing. Here, have a listen to the PM. Over the past months, we've seen a number of different applications uh, put forward by various jurisdictions around the world that you're right, didn't really work all that well. Some of the challenges were that uh, these applications needed to sit in the foreground of your phone and therefore drained batteries and you had to work to keep them active quite regularly. Um, in the past weeks, Apple and Google put out uh, major upgrades to their operating systems that allow this application to work in the background. So you don't have to do anything around this application other than download it. If you test positive, uh, they will uh, plug in a code that alerts uh, any phone that has been uh, close to yours that uh, you have now tested positive. And if you have a phone um, that alerts you that you may have been in proximity with someone who subsequently tested positive, you can just call public health and uh, they'll work through the next steps that you have to do. It's something you can just download and forget about. And because it's completely anonymous, because it's uh, low, low maintenance, because it is uh, completely respectful of your privacy, including, inclu uh, also including no location services or geotagging of any sort, people can be confident that this is an easy measure that they can have to continue to keep us all safe as we reopen, as we get more active. Uh, this is an approach that uh, we are confident is going to make a big difference, uh, and Canadians can do this and forget about it. So there it is. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking about this COVID Shield app, a Made in Canada app that might just help us move a bit more freely as we begin to reopen up societally. We've gone from it being all about isolation and lockdown to physical distancing, which we still need to keep in place, plus masks now in places that physical distancing is not um, an easy thing to do. If you find yourself in close quarters, masks definitely protect others. It's the single kindest thing you can do for your community. This is all part of our new normal. It, and now contact tracing is also very much part of our new normal. And to sort of walk us through what that all means is none other than the germ guy, Jason Tetro, host of the super awesome science show. Never has science been more important. I think we can all agree. Jason, great to talk to you as always. Uh, great to be joining you. Let's talk a little bit about how contact tracing is sort of our, our next big phase of COVID-19, what it means and how people really need to consume the science behind contact tracing? Well, I mean, contact tracing is important in any kind of situation where you have some kind of virus or infection that's burning through a community, uh, whether it's, you know, a foodborne outbreak, uh, whether it be a cluster in some school or a nursing home. And so when we started seeing this COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 virus showing up, the first thing we wanted to do was to try and find out if we could control, not control, but um, understand how it's spreading. And the way that you do that is through contact tracing, which really is just kind of like working backwards to the source. So you have a person in front of you who happens to be, you know, positive. You want to find out how that person got it. And so you go through a process that somehow finds a way to go back. Uh, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, doing a family tree, except in this particular case, it's a virus tree. It really is so important to sort of wrap your head around it and watching the daily briefings from Dr. Bonnie Henry and sort of understanding her epidemiologist background sort of intel as she's trying to download it in the simplest of terms. Many in our community 
aren't taking that all in and and are looking at these things as I you know I'm not going to wear a mask. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I I'm not going to contact trace. Like you, I'm not going to tell you where I was. And it's like, well, see, the reason why we're doing this is actually protecting one another. Can you talk us um, talk us through a mask? Is hard. It's kind of a hard thing to do, but. How we went from maybe masks are a thing to masks are certainly a thing. And it's becoming, you know what? Masks are mandatory in most spaces where physical distancing is impossible. Why is that? Well, we all know from a variety of different types of uh, diseases that barrier protection is the best way to protect yourself. I'm sure you've heard about that, right? Yes. And so the fact of the matter is that the mask essentially acts like a barrier. And so that's one of the reasons why you want to be having a mask when you find yourself into in a situation where there are going to be people within that six-foot distance because you really don't know if that person is positive or not. Now, the thing is, is that this isn't new, especially if you've talked to me, because I've been talking about this for well over a decade when it comes to wearing a scarf. Because mm-hmm. the scarf is also a form of barrier protection, and it also gives you that added um, sort of security against someone who's coughing and spurting. The difference is now that we have finally gotten to a point where the idea of a mask, which is the easiest type of you know, barrier protection for your face, is something that we can essentially put out there to the rest of the community um, outside of healthcare. Now, the thing is, okay, back in the day, if you wore a mask in an airport, eh, people would look at you kind of funny. You might get a visit over to secondary because people might think, you know, you got Ebola or something. It's very different yeah. now. So it's not that the science has changed. It's that our society has changed and we're becoming more apt to understanding that that barrier is going to be very important until we get to a point where we've either burned out the virus completely, um, we have some kind of immunity, whether it be through a vaccine or herd immunity, or essentially we get to a point where um, we know how to prevent that virus from having any impact on our society whatsoever. We're with Jason Tetro, the host of the super awesome science show, The Germ Guy. And you've certainly, you're the one who got me started wearing scarves no matter the season when I fly. You were like, air travel, wear a scarf. Because it was like, do you put Vaseline on your nose? No. Do you, do you wipe everything down? Well, you can. But the most important thing is to just sort of keep those droplets and keep any aerosol from getting inside your nose, which is another thing about masks that I wanted, m- mouth and nose, I should say. But another thing about masks that I think is really important to your point and what we've talked to Ian Young of the South China Morning Post uh, about a lot, because he was very early on saying, you know, you're all freaked out by masks because of where we live. We haven't had to deal with the viral outbreaks to the extent that some in um, Asia in particular, where there are billions and billions of people living in in tight spaces, Mm -hmm. you know, masks are a normal part of every day. People are saying, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but largely one of the reasons why Japan has been able to open up during COVID-19 is the majority of the population, when out in public, anywhere in public, wears a mask. Yeah, and, and I mean, think about it. One of the reasons that um, people of Asian descent will be wearing those masks is because of an allergy. Um, they're not protecting themselves from air pollution or anything like that. Uh, there, there's an allergy that goes around, and so the mask actually helps to prevent that. Now, granted, a pollen grain is going to be a heck of a lot larger than a virus, but not necessarily bigger than a droplet. 
And so when we talk about droplet infection, the mask is a fantastic way of being able to help prevent that from getting inside of you. So the reality is, is that something that was completely um, separate or independent from the virus has really helped a place like Japan be able to uh, use that barrier protection to help them against the virus. It's, it's kind of like that translation that we always talk about. Fact is, we haven't really needed to do that here. And mm -hmm. so we've got to sort of start from scratch and, and build what we like to call that self-efficacy, that ability to know that we can make a difference by doing something that's really, really simple. We're talking masks and all things COVID-19, misinformation, disinformation, information we need with somebody who knows science, Jason Tetro, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. This is a podcast you got to be uh, subscribing to. It is, it is fun and it is informative and it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Jason. I really appreciate you taking some time out here. We do have phone calls coming in on our phone board, uh, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. We're talking about masks before the break. And uh, it is important to note that Dr. Bonnie Henry here in British Columbia, not advocating mandatory widespread mask use. Um, so it's kind of a regional thing still. Um, but certainly, m I personally use a mask, I encourage my elderly parents to also use masks with when around their their friends, because we just never know who might be asymptomatic. Certainly, we're staying home if we're showing any symptoms of any kind. But masks can come into play in a big way. As you and I have spoken about, Jason, you've always been a very upfront and, and, and blunt about these barriers. So let's get to the phone board now. And we'll start with Bob in Vancouver. Welcome to the show. Do you have a question for Jason Tetro? I'll make a couple of points and maybe a question and then I'll hang up. Um, Okay. You know, the experts have been wrong almost every step of the way. And I understand that because it's not an exact science. But Fauci, Dr. Tam, and Bonnie are telling everyone only if several weeks ago, masks are no good, they're ineffective, they don't work, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're telling everybody we need them. So, you know, the great unwashed get confused. And I understand why they challenge some of these opinions now. And secondly, I travel to 17 different countries on a regular basis. I travel to Asia a lot. I do business in all those countries, and none of my friends or business associates wear masks there because they're concerned about allergies. I don't accept that. And the last thing is this. We need Dr. Bonnie Henry to either say masks work or they don't. Why would she be one way and other people are the other? You know, it, this is either science or it is not. Maybe your guest can explain all that to me, especially the part about the allergies. Okay, thank you so much, Bob. We appreciate you phoning in and giving us an opportunity to uh, answer exactly that. Jason, your thoughts on uh, what Bob had to say there. Yeah, so the allergies itself is actually due to the pollen that occurs. Um, I don't remember the exact uh, Latin name of the tree, uh, but it's very widespread in uh, Japan. And those who are allergic um, or have symptoms to it will actually uh, use that mask. Um, and I've actually seen this numerous times here in Canada as well. Um, so in that context, your friends may not be allergic, uh, but there's definitely a, a group of people who are. And it has become more and more um, normal to be wearing a mask in those uh, societies. Now, as to whether or not a mask works, you have to understand one thing here. When we're talking about masks, 
You have to put it on properly. You have to wear it a certain way. And before the homemade masks have been put around, which are really good because you don't have any other option, there's only one way to wear it, you could wear a medical mask inappropriately, and that would actually put you at a higher risk. We know this because that happened with SARS in healthcare facilities. We know that happened with MERS in Saudi Arabia because, well, for one thing, I was there. Um, so if it's a medical mask or an N95 and you don't know how to use it properly, it's not going to help you. However, those homemade ones that we have right now, they're designed to do exactly what they're supposed to do. And that's why at this point, we now know that the masks are going to be able to help us as opposed to put us at higher risk because we don't have the appropriate training. Okay, let's squeeze in Stephen here. Stephen, welcome to the show. Do you have a question for Jason Tetro? Yeah, just about masks being the, the best barrier against the disease. The, the, the best barrier when you're looking at hazard reduction methods of is to avoid it altogether. So the, the distancing <laughs> yes. is this is the first thing. And then if you're, if you're within that distancing, then there's different kinds of masks. And like you said, they need to be worn properly. Mm-hmm. An N95 respirator worn properly and taken off properly and disposed of properly is a whole lot better than a a homemade one for protecting the wearer and for Mm -hmm. protecting the people who might be exposed to the wearer if they're infected. But N95s aren't available for everyone to use. So we have to make do with what we have, which is a lot less effective, be it protecting the wearer or protecting people from the wearer if they are infected. So or ensuring that those of... N95s are available to the frontline healthcare worker, which was certainly a priority uh, coast mm-hmm. to coast and even, even internationally. Yeah. And you have to be fit tested for them too, uh, which is right, huge. True. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a half hour test. Uh, and if you've never been fit tested, let me tell you something, you're missing something. Not a good thing, though. Uh, But let me also point out one other thing, and that is when it comes to masks, any kind of barrier protection that you're dealing with a fabric, a textile, the most important thing is the same thing that we tell every Canadian or anyone who comes to Canada, it's layers. So when you look at an N95 mask, even though you don't really see it, there's 250 layers in there. That's why it's so good. So if you want to have a homemade mask that's essentially a bandana that's one layer, eh, not going to do you a heck of a lot of good. You start folding that up into two, four, maybe even eight, you're increasing the likelihood of any type of droplet or aerosol getting trapped inside of that mask and not into your lungs or even your nose. Um, So the fact of the matter is, is that more layers is going to be better. And these homemade masks now are coming with uh, layers inside of them. And I think even uh, the TransLink masks, uh, masks have several layers associated with them. And apparently they look really comfy too. Well, I think that is uh, some really solid information that I think we all need to consume. I know there's some some sort of hesitance towards the mask because there has been varying mm-hmm. sort of uh, messaging around it. But am I mistaken in thinking that early days, the priority was to protect healthcare workers and make sure that there was enough PPE in our country for them? Uh, that was one of the reasons, yes. Uh, the other reason was the fact that people who understand uh, infection prevention control know that uh, if you're not wearing those medical masks appropriately, uh, you're actually putting yourself at even greater risk simply because you're giving yourself that false sense of confidence, which is, of course, what we heard about. Now we have yeah. these masks that are designed 
rates to actually help keep us safe. And as a result of that, we can now start looking towards people using masks more often. I'm not a fan of mandatory either, but by the same respect, if you're going to be within that six-foot distance of another person and you don't know what their status is and your Bluetooth hasn't told you, eh, it's probably a good idea to have that on. Always such a pleasure to talk to you, Jason. Thanks for doing this. Hey, it was a pleasure. Take care. That is Jason Tetro, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. And at the root of all of this, before you put a mask on your face or take it off, wash your hands. You may or may not know this about me, but from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s, my full-time job was that of a sportscaster. I had a total blast. I met so many cool athletes and, and characters. I was covering all sports, but certainly hockey was at the forefront, the front and center, if you will. And while X's and O's and breaking down the games, super fun, the most entertaining part was actually connecting with those unique enigmas, the people who broke the rules about the sort of carefully crafted media training, go out there and give it 110%. My next guest certainly tops the list of you never know what you're going to get in a great way, both on the ice and off. Absolutely thrilled to have George LaRock join us on the line. Bonjour. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm so great, and I'm so glad that we connected. Thank you for doing this. Uh, Time changes, and you're in high demand right now. You're on Zoom calls. You're on radio. You're a best-selling author. You've got a lot going on. Yeah, no, it's just that, unfortunately, with everything going on in in the world, uh, you know, right now with all the protests and what's going on. And, and I'm also uh, joining the LGBT uh, community to, uh, because to me, inequality and racism, it's, not just, it's, also, uh, it's also towards LGBT uh, community, right? So I'm joining force for them. We did a big Zoom about it today. And, uh, and you know, with, with this COVID thing, the positive thing is that now people are talking about real issues and they are demanding change. And I think that... Uh, Collectively, uh, with everybody speaking up, we can make a big difference. Right. The silver lining here in all of this is that we are having the very difficult conversations. I want to start, though, because some people may not know that you've actually had COVID-19 and spoken openly about your experience. Can you share a little with our listener? Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's crazy because when I got it, I never thought I was going to get it because I thought I was immune to it. And, you know, the fact that I'm vegan, I'm healthy. I thought that, you know, there's no way I was going to get it. And, and I did get it because, uh, you know, the fact that I'm asthmatic and, uh, you know, I had a bit of shortness of breath. So I went to the hospital. They gave me a bit of oxygen, but after four, four days, I was fine. I, know, I knew that I was going to be fine because of my age. I'm much younger. And, but the people that were in my room, they were much older. They were 80 years old. They were suffering big time. For them, it was much harder. For them, it was hard to watch them suffer like this. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, to me, when I look at that, um, it, you know, it, I would have dealt with that differently um, if I was the government, because I think that there's a lot of scaring the population with this thing. And yes, the people at risk for them is more dangerous. But, you know, the fact that we've closed all the business for so long, what I feel bad about is a lot of companies are going to close down. And, you know, I think the economic crisis is going to be much bigger than the COVID itself. So we'll see how it plays out. But it's really unfortunate that people that have saved, you know, they're saving all their lives now. Um, you know, they're really struggling financially. Right. The collateral damage here is something we can't even do the math on yet. We're in the infancy stages of this pandemic. And you're right, there's been some massive impact from the 
economic side, which does trickle down into into families and the well-being of people outside of that of COVID-19. We're very glad that that you're OK um, and, and that you found your way through. I didn't know that you had asthma. I didn't know you had an underlying condition. Um, what I do know is that you were an absolute blast to cover when you were uh, playing in the National Hockey League. You uh, were unapologetically George at all times. Um, and, and more recently, you've really spoken about the racism that you, um, you felt while coming up through the National Hockey League. And I find it absolutely gives me goosebumps to see how you um, process that and how you used it as motivation. Share that with our listener. Well, you know, in my youth, when I grew, the, what people have to understand about racism is that racism always been there. You know, but today, the reason why people are appalled, people are witnessing, like, uh, racial, like, what minorities are going through because everything's on camera. Everything is filmed. So because everything is filmed, you can see what's been going on for years because things haven't changed. When I grew up and I played minor hockey, I was getting called the N-word every day, all the time. It was insane. It was so bad that my parents would not come and watch me play hockey because they were like, we can't go in the rink in this environment where our son is getting called the N-word and he's only seven years old. So they didn't want me to play hockey. And I told my parents that I can't quit because they're going to win and I'm going to make it to the NHL. And I was like, you know what? I don't think they thought I was going to stay. But they're like, as long as we don't see that it's affecting you, we're going to leave you there. But if you see that, we're going to pull you out. So I had to cry in silence at night because if they saw me, they would pull me out of hockey. So what I did is I was so lucky to, to fall into Jackie Robinson autobiography because I read uh, as a kid, he went through the same thing as me to become the first black player to play baseball and he used the N-word as a motivation to make it. When I read that, I said, you know what? The process I'm going through is normal because, you know, Jackie went through this process, so I'm going to go through the same. I'm going to use that as a motiv- motivation, too. I'm not going to let it attack me, diminishing me. So that's what I did. So every time people would call me like that, I'm like, I'm going to prove them wrong one day. I'm going to prove them wrong one day. And I was 10 years old. I was saying that. 11, 12. Every year I was saying that. And when I made it to the NHL, I thanked everybody that called me all those names because hockey was never my favorite sport. But the thing is, because of everything that I've been through, it was my long life mission to prove everybody wrong. And then I had to make it because that was my way of fighting back to make it, to show everyone that despite everything you said to me, I made it to the, to the NHL and I played for 13 years. What an unbelievable story. The mother in me is crushed for you and for your parents having to go through that at such a young age. And, as, and I'm going to check my privilege right now. As an entitled white woman, I can have absolutely no concept of what it might be like to be you. To, to, yeah. to even pretend to know what it would feel like as a seven-year-old child to have racial slurs hurled at you while you're doing what, you know, is the, is the Canadian dream. It is just unbelievable to, to, to imagine. And I'm grateful for the Jackie Robinson uh, reference there because it is something that more people should uh, maybe, maybe hold on to and grasp on to during these difficult times. George LaRocque, former NHLer, a best-selling author. He's a radio host. And you're very um, involved in uh, social change and you're very engaged, George. I'm very happy to have your voice uh, being lent to us today at this all-important time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me again. So, 
again, as the entitled white girl, this is a this is a tough question. Talking about racism is very difficult um, for me, I find. And, and I come from a mixed race family. <laughs> and still, I don't know what it's like to walk a mile. I can tell you that I watch in horror what is happening uh, in the United States with uh, the fallout since the, the murder of George Floyd, uh, the uprising. I you know, want to stand uh, with those trying to make change. Um, but it does feel like I feel rather helpless. What are, what are you feeling like and what, what has it been like for you to watch over these last few weeks and, and get involved and, ha- and lend your voice to the cause of, of, of making change and ending race, racism about, well, against black people and Black Lives Matter specifically? Well, the thing is, is that what people have to realize is that it's been like this all my life. And for my family, my friends, and everyone of color, that's, that's, how, that's what, what you guys are seeing right now on camera. This is what we've been fighting through all our lives. But before, when we talked about it, it was viewed as a minority issue, where now it's viewed as a worldwide issue because now everyone is talking about it. Whites, all nationalities are talking about this problem because they witness what's going on and they're disgusted by it. So it's yes. good because... For the first time, because so many are talking about it now, that's when now you could expect changes. But to me, it's one thing, because we've been talking about it forever, and it's awesome to see all the, the, the personality talking about it, the sports figure talking about it, but it's time for business owners and government to have a zero policy for racism. So for the government, if the government in every country should have a zero policy, so which means any police officer, firemen, nurse, doctors, anyone that works for the government, you get cut once doing an act of racism, you're fired. Because yes. the thing that we have to understand with racism is that people that are racist, you're not going to change them. You're not going to turn somebody that is racist, not being racist because you're doing a protest or you're talking to them. That's how they are in their DNA inside of them. It's, it's, it's this stupid. So what you could do, you could force them to be respectful for the people around them, even if they are racist. You could control the environment. So if they know that their job, whatever they work for, there's zero policy, they need to feed their family, they need to live. So they're going to shut up. They're not going to act. They're not going to do anything because they'll be afraid to lose their job. So what's going to happen if you do this? There's going to be a habit that's going to be created. Because since they won't be able to express themselves like they were before, they're going to have to contend themselves with time, holding back and change. They'll see that being just loving and caring with everyone around them, it's much easier than hating someone. So with time, this mentality could change and then it'll be better. But unless all the business says zero policy, we could talk all we want. But do you think that people that are racist, that are watching TV, the news right now, they're like, oh my God, I got to stop being racist. They love it because they're like, this reaction is because of me. I'm creating hate. That's what they, that's exactly why they're like this. They want division. They don't want love. So we give them exactly what they want. That's why it's time for all the business owners to get up and say, you know what? For my company, my employee is going to be a zero policy. And wait till you see how tight ship all the business are going to be and how people are going to have to change. And now outside of business, in parks, on the street, everywhere, give signs. If somebody, if you give a sign, somebody that goes too fast or blows through a stop sign, they get fines. If somebody is proven with camera or anything that they act in any way with, with a slur or something that is racist, you give them a ticket. Same way as it would be for speeding tickets. So if you do that, again, 
you force people to be respectful for their surroundings. So that way, they all know that at work and outside of work, they're not going to be safe to express the racism. So they're going to have to control themselves. And this is how you're going to see things changing and things getting better. Because we need action right now. But right now, we're all talking. We've been talking for years. There hasn't been any action. And that's why in 2020, things hasn't, hasn't changed yet. Swift and definitive consequences. Who could have imagined that it could be just that commonsensical, George? In all of the listening and the engagement, the discussions that I have heard that that have happened over the last number of weeks now, that is the, the simplest, most straight up. That can happen immediately, and it's up to each individual. And it could start, as you said, with government. Government and then business. Swift action. You know, racism, a racist slur could be equated with um, assault or harassment because it is both of those it things. And, and you're absolutely right. It's just lost in the policy because it's semantics and there's so many bystanders. What can I do when I witness it? What, what should I say? How, how can I be anti-racist? Well, the thing is, is that all you could be is being loving because, you know, for you, for example, you can't put your life at risk if something happens because you're a woman, you mean well, but those people that are racist, they're so aggressive that if you interfere, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I feel really bad if something happened to you because you tried to interfere because of some stupid, that is someone stupid, so closed-minded, and, and they'll get frustrated because you wouldn't intervene. The only thing you could do, actually, is control your environment, people around you. So if you're a loving person and you talk about it and you... Because there is, I'm pretty sure there's people in your surrounding, you might not even know about it, but they, they, they have prejudice. But if you talk to them about, you know, about loving and about how it's important to get along and, and we're all the same, and this is the love that people feel around you, this becomes contagious. Again, it's easier to love someone than to hate someone. So maybe some of your friends that are contagious, when they see you, how accepting you are, you know, you become an example to them. And you'll force, you'll force them to work on themselves. Because that's what I tell everybody. People are like, what should I do? Just be yourself, but just be, just spread love around you. Like with people that are around you. If somebody said something prejudiced around you, just say, why are you saying that? Well, I don't understand. Just ask them the question. Just be nice about it. And then they're going to see, they're going to realize that, why am I like that? Some people, they might not even realize that they have prejudice until they have a conversation with you and then, you can bring light to them. And because they're friends with you, they'll listen to you more than somebody like me. They'll be talking about it because they don't care about that issue. But you, if you control your environment, people that are around you and people that are like you, they all do the same. It becomes like a chain because once everybody do this and you touch everyone, eventually, like, you know, things will just get better and better and better. It's just about the people that are around you. All you can do is control your surrounding, nothing else. And because you're not the one that could implement those rules I was just talking about with the zero racism. But what you could do, though, is with all your friends and everything, you can implement the fact that, you know what? I de- I'm deciding that my friends, the people that I'm going to spend my time with, that I love, that I will invite to my home, are the people that are accepting because, you know, I need, I need to hang out with people that are respecting of every human being. So then we have good conversation. And, you know, and it feels good. And love wins. What a great message. I got to leave it there, George. That was just, I needed that. Thank you. And I'm sure our listener 
is uh, is feeling it as well. We really do appreciate your time today. I'd like to talk to you again soon. Anytime you want. I'm big fan. I've always been a big fan of you, and thank you very much for giving me this platform. I really appreciate it. Maybe I'll do one of those dance videos that you've got going viral there. That's spreading the love as well. And boy, oh boy, Mario Canseco, Research Co-President, uh, is joining us on the line right now. And Mario, I don't think I've ever seen polling with numbers as high as we're seeing on the subject matter you and I are going to discuss today. Definitely not. It's tough to get uh, almost four out of five British Columbians to agree on anything. So we're Absolutely getting close to level on this one. <laughs> it is really something like every single box that's checked here is three out of four, five out of seven, four out of five, 88%. What are we talking about? We're talking about British Columbians being asked whether they would like to see a ban on foreign ownership in real estate. Mario, how did you, uh, how did you come to this as, as a subject matter for right now, and, and how did you go about it? Well, we have been asking about the housing taxes uh, every six months uh, for the past couple of years, and it was time to re-ask this specific question again. And we thought it was a good opportunity as well to uh, figure out how BC residents felt about the notion of banning foreigners, or most foreigners, uh, from actually purchasing real estate. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion related to what is going to happen if housing prices start to come down and you have a lot of foreign capital coming into British Columbia and taking over some of those uh, houses uh, that are meant to be for local residents. So we thought it was a good opportunity. I certainly didn't expect the numbers to be as high as they are. Uh, 78% of BC residents say, let's do something similar to what is being done in New Zealand right now, which is essentially banning most foreigners from having real estate unless you are a citizen from Australia or Singapore due to existing free trade uh, deals that they have with those countries. Which is quite something. I mean, 78% is a just, it's a mind-boggling number. I don't think I've ever seen polling like this. And when we're talking about, uh, quote-unquote, foreign ownership, one of the pieces of what has plagued British Columbia, certainly southern BC and, and predominantly in Metro Vancouver, is that loophole of sort of, you know, flipping properties and using our real estate as almost like stocks in a, in a stock market, a way to launder money is is the allegation in some senses, but certainly a place to sort of park some cash, make a little money off it as the uh, real estate market increases and then flip it over for more. So that box that's not being checked off is that you're a permanent resident. So this isn't trying to exclude people from living here from elsewhere and owning property. It's that you actually have to live in your home. Right. Absolutely. And I think we see that also in the high level of support for, for some of the actions that have been taken already. 79% mm. say it was right to increase the foreign buyer's tax from 15% to 20% to expand it to areas located outside of Metro Vancouver. 77% supportive of the speculation tax. Uh, we started this situation with roughly 56, 57% of BC residents saying this is going to make sense. Now it's up to 77%. So the more time goes by, the more residents are starting to warm up to the notion of these taxes working, uh, even those who didn't vote for the BC NDP, which is quite striking. Now, that being said, we're still 16 months away from the next election, and the uh, Victoria government needs to cut some ribbons. They need to show that these taxes are working to get people in houses, which is what they're meant to do. Yes, I agree with that 100%. When, when these taxes are in place, because people being in favor of a tax at any level 
is usually very, very low. 70, 77% of people saying, yeah, it's a good idea, but it's like, now show me the money. Where is it? And let's put it back into the community and help some people in our affordability crisis and in a pandemic now. Um, still more numbers across the province. Uh, British Columbians thinking that the actions of the current provincial government will be effective in making housing affordable. How many people were on side with that? Yeah, this is an important one. Uh, it's now at 57%. So it's an eight-point increase since the last time we asked back in December of 2019. What is quite striking about this is uh, there's a high level of support for the notion that this is going to be working, uh, particularly from those who voted for the BC Liberals. If we go back to the early stages of this government, uh, there was a lot of discussion about housing. It was the number one issue uh, since 2015. Uh, so it's understandable for the BC Liberals to try to take a very different tone when it comes to the things that the NDP is doing as far as housing. But here we are now, a couple of years after the last election, and most BC Liberals believe that this is going to work as well. So it's not going to be an easy one right now to try to figure out where you stand when it comes to housing if the BC Liberal voters who, who, who was with you in the last election is now saying, I may dislike the NDP on some policies, but, but on this one, I think you're, they are on the right track. We're with Mario Canseco uh, from Research Co. You can see this entire um, article at researchco.ca to uh, read it all. Like I said, I, I don't think I've, I've seen anything like it, but what it certainly does reflect, Mario, is the the sheer and utter exhaustion and frustration of citizens here with regard to the affordability crisis that we have witnessed and, and certainly the allegations of money laundering and the use of, of our real estate market in ways that that X'd out so many residents here, right? Well, it's important as well because we go back to the moment when we were only having very small discussions about whether we would have an actual inquiry into money laundering. And, mm -hmm. and now we are having it. It's definitely different from, from, from what a lot of people expected because of the pandemic. We haven't seen the coverage uh, that rivals, you know, Watergate in the U.S., for instance. So it's very different the way that we're living this, but it's definitely an issue that is bothering residents. If you go back to the 2017 election, most of those discussions were about housing, concentrated particularly with younger residents, millennials who were trying to get into the market, and those in Metro Vancouver who were having a very difficult time buying anything. Uh, these are yeah. core groups for the for the NDP to maintain support if they want to form the next election without any help from the Greens. So it's definitely crucial for them to try to connect with these voters right now. Fascinating stuff. Mario, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Jody. Anytime.